0: Hey, a um, couple of things before we get uh, into the message. I want to thank our team for today. As you can imagine, there's a lot of adjustments happening because of the weather and a lot of, a lot of last minute things and appreciate the talented Michael Glenn uh, for stepping in in our traditional service as well because uh, so many people couldn't get here <clears throat> and also leading our modern service for our whole team that has been moving things and adjusting all morning. So I know you didn't get to see all that, but so proud of our team to be able to do that. Of course, our online stuff, we're grateful to be able to have that. That's stuff we've been doing for quite a while. So that was a fairly easy transition, although a few little things had to adjust. But just great to be able to, to do something like this and know our team is right here uh, with us to help us make that happen. The other thing, is Daniel mentioned to you, the father-daughter banquet coming up on Saturday the 20th. Uh, we do have a few tickets available still, so you need to get those. I think it's supposed to be like 50 degrees, so... It shouldn't be like today on that weekend. Uh, also, we need volunteers. So if you can help volunteer uh, for either one of those seatings, that would be great. We're doubling it up this year so we can still have our distance uh, and still have a lot of folks show up. So that, uh, that'll that be a great help for those if you can be there. Just let us know. Uh, of course, you saw the video, right? And the, the, the moral to that story is don't be a Jerry. Now, there's some great Guys named Jerry in our church, and some great females named Jerry in our church. We're not talking about them. I'm talking about that guy. And I know that you're not him, right? Because that just doesn't work. So hopefully you've you've learned that lesson by now. If you're in a relationship, uh, that you cannot just do nothing for Valentine's. Uh, and so that kind of ties into our topic this morning, as we discuss the issue of Valentine's Valentine's Day. Really, the the bigger picture is about love. Love that we have for each other and love that God has for us. And that's, you know, Valentine's Day is all about love, but really every day is focused on love. So whether you're married, whether you're dating, whether you're single, the truth is we all have a desire to be loved and to love. God wired us that way. There's a need that we have to be loved, to feel loved, feel like there's somebody on this planet that cares whether we're here or not. And then the ability to express love, to be able to show people how much they mean to us, and uh, to express that love. That comes from God. The Bible says God is love. So love's not a feeling. Love is God. So when we know God, we're able to love each other to that same level that He loves us, the level that He desires for us as we relate to one another in family, in marriage, even in church, the importance of having that same kind of love for one another. So this morning, we're going to look at some passages that deal with this issue of relationships. And really kind of tying that into the great commandment. You know, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that passes in Scripture. Then it goes on, and says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there in that passage, we see the two go hand in hand. As we love God, we love people. That's our, our statement here, pursuing Christ and loving people. We can't love people to the degree we're supposed to if we don't pursue Christ. But because God is love and we know him, then we're enabled to love one another to that same level, unconditional, not based on performance, not based on what they can do for us, not even based on love being returned, but to love each other to that same level, that same commitment that God has for us. And it's interesting because when you kind of boil all that down, it really ties in. Our ability to love one another ties into our idea about God and who he is, and our relationship to him. For example, I want to, I want to read a passage to you from Psalm 139.3. The Bible says, talking about God, he is intimately acquainted with all your ways. So God is aware of everything that you and I do. In fact, I have this thought, remembering back when our kids were little, and they would be asleep in the morning, and I'd be getting up and maybe about to head off to work. But I wanted to spend a few minutes with them, but they were still asleep. So I remember going into the room and peering over the crib and looking at them as they sleep. And they're so peaceful and, and so beautiful there, but I wanted to spend time with them. So every once in a while, I'd kind of nudge the crib or cough or make a loud noise to wake them up. Because even though it wasn't time for, to get them up, and Robin would have to put them back to bed later, but uh, I just wanted to spend some time with them. And I just kind of have that same image for God. Every time we wake up in the morning, he's excited to be able to express to us how much he loves us. He, he is excited about every day to demonstrate to us that he is love and that he cares for us. He deeply cares for us. And, and our minds cannot fully fathom the depth of God's love for us. But that understanding, as finite as it is, helps us to understand how we can love each other the way God intends for us to love one another. So this morning, we're going to look at the first human crisis. So before I throw this scripture up on the screen, if I were to ask you to turn your Bible to the first human crisis, where would you go? Some of us probably would turn to the passage about where Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some may turn to the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain killed his brother Abel, the first murder recorded in the Bible. But actually, the first human crisis occurred before any of those events. The first human crisis is actually found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Bible says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So we, we know that that is the creation of Eve, that was God's response. But what's interesting, I don't know if you realize this or not, this occurred before the fall. The fall doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 3. So when God makes this statement, everything is good. God recognizes that there is something that is not good. That's the first time he utters that phrase. All creation was good until he saw Adam alone. Now That's when God first said, it is not good. This is not good. So that gives us some perspective on God, again, to relates to how we see God and how we see God in our relationship to him. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, when some of us hear that, we see that as a threat, right? We can see Jesus with kind of a scowl on his face and maybe even pointing his finger. Hey, if you love me, You better keep my commandments. But what if we read it differently? What if we read it more as a promise like this since you love me, you're going to keep my commandments? Because obedience is a natural response to love. With our children, we want our children to be obedient to us, not just because of rules and regulations, just not out of duty as a child, but because they love us, because we've built that relationship. God is the same way. He wants us to know that he loves us. And as we love him in return, those are some of the responses we will have, some of the activities we will have. And so to understand Genesis 2.18, it's important to know the significance, actually the context of the first human crisis. So just imagine for a minute, here's Adam and he's been created by God. God has created Genesis chapter 1. God goes through, and every day he creates, except for the seventh. And at the end of every day, the Bible says God saw that it was good. He creates Adam, and Adam is there on the earth, and God has Adam name all the animals. Adam has the ability to roam around, and he's really kind of the best of all creation. God makes it very clear that Adam is the best of all he's created. And so he's there in this perfect world without any sin. He also has a perfect relationship to God because there's no sin. He walks with God in the garden. He talks to God on a daily basis. There's nothing nothing separating Adam from God. So God sees it all as good until he looks at Adam and says, this is not good. It is not good for Adam to be alone. He'd already seen all the animals. In fact, Adam has named all the animals by this point. And there's not one animal that resembles him, that's like him. So he's got a perfect paradise. He's a perfect relationship with God, but yet still it's not good because Adam is alone. That gives us insight into God that he recognizes Adam's aloneness. And he wants to take the not good and make it very good. The not good of aloneness God addresses, and he makes that statement. So what does that say about us? Well, obviously, Adam was the first human being created, and so that reflects for us that God has created all of us as human beings with a desire for an intimate relationship with him. People search for that all their lives. Some never find it, but many of us have. So God created us for that. In addition to that relationship with God, he's also created us with a desire for an intimate, loving relationship with another human being or other human beings, significant people in our lives. So when we talk about pursuing Christ and loving people, that reflects Scripture, that God created us for both. He created us to be relational, being made in the likeness of God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's relational. He created us to be relational. And so he sees Adam, and although he has a relationship with God and and the animals, he doesn't have anyone like him. So God starts to address the problem. If you look at Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he was made and it was very good, and there was evening, there was morning, there was the sixth day. So all creation is good. He sees Adam's aloneness and so his response is, he makes woman. He made Eve. And all the men said, amen, praise God, thank you <laughs> for making women, right? So God says, I need to make someone like him, someone he can relate to, someone that fills this aloneness in relationship. So you start with the not good of aloneness. Okay, so how does that apply to us today? Well, in reality, if you're a parent, you might imagine that part of what your children or your students deal with is this feeling of being all alone. I think the pandemic has kind of ramped that feeling up for a lot of us, being isolated, quarantined, separated. Many have felt, there's some people who still haven't gotten out of their house. And so it's easy to feel all alone, wonder if anybody cares if they're still alive or not, or cares what they're going through. So as a parent, imagine your children facing that struggle. And maybe some of their behaviors are a result of this void in their life, this need to feel loved and appreciated and a part of something, yet for some reason they feel all alone. And as a parent, part of your job, part of your responsibility is to remove that aloneness from them. Maybe that's happening in our marriages Some of us have been married a few years. Some of us have been married several years. And maybe you're going through some marriage issues right now in your own life, and these issues are a result of one or maybe both, husband and wife, feeling all alone. Feeling like they're carrying their end of the bargain for marriage and the other spouse is not. Or maybe just wondering if their spouse really does love them or really cares about them. And it's created this sense of aloneness within them. Maybe this is an issue in churches. Maybe it's an issue in our church where people come, and unlike today, there are hundreds of people on campus. We have life groups. We have different groups and different ministries. We have father-daughter banquets. We have all these different events. And you know as well as I do, you can go to these events and be surrounded by hundreds of people and still feel all alone. And loneliness is a terrible thing. It is debilitating. If you've ever experienced loneliness, you know how much you don't ever want to experience that again. But it happens in churches, it happens in marriages, and it happens in families all the time. So it's important that you and I understand exactly what God did, taking the not good of aloneness and applying that committed, covenant, agape God kind of love to those relationships that they might be, as God said, it is very good. When he created Eve and he saw Adam and Eve together, that's the first time he said it is very good. He had said it was good before, but now that Adam had someone to relate to that was like him, he said it is very good. So God offers that same potential for us to take the not so good in our relationships, to apply the very good of committed, loving relationships and turn the whole situation into very good. But we have to add God's provision of a loving relationship. The truth is, only relationships remove aloneness. Only loving, supporting, encouraging relationships can remove aloneness. It's not about being in a crowd. It's not being a part of a mass group or a club or something. It's about a loving relationship. So only when you take the aloneness and you put committed love to it, can it turn something that's not good into what is good? This whole experience in Genesis, again, reflects who God is. He saw Adam's need, and he said, I will. He saw the problem, and he said, I will. I will make a suitable helper. Aren't you glad we serve a God who not only announces the problem, but he resolves it? He didn't just acknowledge and recognize that it was not good for Adam to be alone. He said, I will resolve the issue. I I will. I will make a helper. God resolves problems. God settles crisis. And God took the initiative. Because God is love. And true love, committed love, always takes the initiative. It's not waiting for the person to respond or initiate. If you truly love your spouse, you will initiate this love relationship. If you truly love your friends, even when they're being unlovely, you will initiate love. You will demonstrate love, whether they do or not. This is the God kind of love. This is the love that the world doesn't offer for us. One of the reasons God does this is because God understands alone. He understands that feeling of being all alone. That's demonstrated on the cross with Jesus. As he's hanging there on the cross, you remember the seven statements that he makes there at the end of his life. And one of those statements, one of the most powerful earth-shattering statements was when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is God the Son crying out to God the Father because God the Son had become our sin. He took our sin upon himself and that made him so despicable that the Father turned his back on him. Couldn't even look at him. And in that moment, Jesus felt all alone. Now, what happened there at Calvary is beyond our understanding. That's something we're never fully going to understand, what happened and what was all in that statement. But I believe that demonstrates what God is saying to us. Hey, I know what aloneness is, and I don't want you to ever have to experience it, which shows us the heart of God. He sacrificed his own son so that he might know us and we might know him. And so because of that, we can experience the very good of intimate relationships in our marriage, in our family, in our churches because of God's initiation. The question is, how do you get there? You put this God kind of love together with the not good of aloneness, the not good of the human experience, and amazingly, supernaturally, it turns out, very good. God's love is appropriate in any and every situation. His forgiveness is universal. It's eternal. And we take that kind of love and we apply it. The love that exists within us because we know God that we can apply to our relationships, it turns the not so good into very good. And what's going to happen in our homes, parents are going to begin to see their kids' needs beyond their deeds. (laughs) begin to ask the question, why is my son acting that way? Why is my daughter talking like that? Could it be that there's an unmet need in his or her life that as a parent I can step in and help meet? In our marriages, even in the midst of maybe marriage struggle, marriage issues, we can begin to ask the question, is there something going on in the life of my spouse that makes him or her feel all alone? And God's desire for me as the husband or the wife is to step in and remove that aloneness in their life. So as parents, we stop focusing on all the things that we demand of our kids, you know, brush your teeth, eat with your mouth closed, get dressed, hurry up, make your bed, to really wondering, how can I minister to my child? How can I disciple my son or daughter? That when they're old, they will continue to follow in the ways of the Lord. How can I train up my child? So when he or she is older, she will not depart from the faith. These are great questions that are involved in true love. When we do this with our spouses, we begin to fulfill the purpose of marriage. That in the human relationship, as the two become one, it's an opportunity for God to minister to each other, to the husband and to the wife, using their relationship to minister and to bring God glory. When that starts to happen, we start to see homes become very good. That aloneness begins to dissipate. We begin to fulfill the covenant marriage that God desires for us. So men, let me ask you this question. If God desires for you to remove the aloneness from your wife, could it be... That instead of removing aloneness, you're actually creating it in your wife's life. By the things you say or the things you do or the way you treat her, that you're actually making her feel feel more alone. There's a rampant disease that many men face. It's called male chauvinism. Male chauvinism basically is the idea that women are inferior to men. And so I jotted down just a couple of thoughts in the spirit of Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, You may be a male chauvinist if. You may be a male chauvinist if you see women as inferior to men. You may be a male chauvinist if you just want your women to be barefoot and pregnant and stay in the kitchen. You believe that all women are the same. You may be a male chauvinist if you believe that your wife's number one purpose should be to serve you. You may be a male chauvinist if you think it's okay to make fun of your wife in public. Now, if you answered, I mean, it's kind of joking, but seriously, if you answered yes to any of those things, you have a problem. If you look upon women as inferior to you, Your wife is inferior to you. Your daughters, any woman you see is inferior to you. You are a male chauvinist, and you have a problem. This is not God's intent. This is not what Jesus meant when he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And Can I tell you that male chauvinism is alive and well in the church? It's alive and well in Burleson, Texas. It's alive and well at First Baptist Burleson. In fact, I've heard some things that men have said about women, about their wives, that should not have been said. Some of you guys are chauvinists. And the way you talk about and the way you treat your wives demonstrates that. Or maybe you never verbalize it, but that's how you think about them. That's not right. Women are not inferior to men. Now we, a lot of men, a lot of Christian men, will use the Bible to support their thoughts in their ideas about women. But if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, as we go through the creation story. In Genesis chapter 2, where God creates Eve. Before Genesis chapter 3, before the fall, God says to Adam and Eve, partners. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth. Rule over all of creation. That's the commission he gave to both Adam and Eve, not just Adam. And then both Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Both of them were disobedient. And because of that, sin entered into the world. And in Genesis chapter 3 is where we have the curse, the curse of the serpent, the curse of the man, and the curse of the woman. But then let's get to the New Testament. And Jesus came to redeem all that Adam messed up. Jesus came through obedience to redeem Adam's disobedience, which impacts the curse, which impacts sin and its power over us. And if you read the New Testament, Jesus actually elevates the role of women. The woman caught in adultery. The law said she could be stoned. Jesus set her free. The Samaritan woman. Culture said Jews and Samaritans don't mix. Jesus was compassionate towards her. Paul, as we talked about last week, has a bad reputation when it comes to women. Paul actually elevated the role of women in the church and in ministry. So if you and I see women as inferior, we're going against Scripture. We're going against God's desire and God's design. And if that's who you are, you need to stop it. This is something you need to talk to God about, that he can change your heart and change your mind. Because if that's the way you think, that is the way you will behave towards women even your wife, even your daughters. It's not the way it should be, especially in the church. In those areas, we're to be counterculture. It may be accepted in our culture, it should not be accepted in our church. You may have heard the, the quote from Matthew Henry. I think it's a great picture that describes this view of men and women and how God created us both in the image of God. Matthew Henry said, Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart, and to be loved by him. I think that's a great way to view our relationship between men and women. Now, ladies, the Bible speaks to you as well. And if you desire to be a wife of excellence, what that means is doing your part to help remove aloneness that may exist in your husband. That may exist in your children. That may exist in your marriage. And one of the ways you can do that, according to Paul's writings of Ephesians chapter 5, is to show respect to your husband that you love Him, that you trust Him, that you are there for Him regardless. And the truth about men is we can face all kinds of junk at work and all kinds of abuse, abuse by the world if we know that our wives respect us, that they love us. Even when we blow it, even when we don't do it right, they still have a respect for us. Just like in that same chapter where Paul said that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. But If you're reading Ephesians 5.21, he starts out by saying, submit to one another. But women are created with a desire to be loved and men are created with a desire to be respected. Both of those express love, just a little bit different in how they're translated. But this is the reason God puts us together that we can encourage one another, build one another up, not tear each other down. When I was a youth pastor, there was a couple in our church, that very popular couple. Very, They were leaders in, in different ministries in the church. They were very involved in our church. And he was a, a man of stature. He had a great reputation. But one of the things that he would always do, he, he loved to make fun of his wife around other people. And she'd be standing right there in a group of people, and he would make fun of her to some degree or something she had done and something she had said. And he thought it was funny, but nobody else really did. And she would smile, but you could tell it was painful. You could see the pain in her eyes. And because of that, his tendency to make fun of her, he lost respect by all those who used to look up to him. I think it damaged his ministry. It de- definitely damaged his witness. And though I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it damaged his marriage. That's not God's intent for us. Husband and wives here, both created in the image of God, both commissioned by God to love one another, to demonstrate. Because in marriage, is how we demonstrate God's relationship to us. So we need to make sure we're doing it in a healthy way. And what happens in churches, when we begin to increase our care for one another, then divisions begin to decrease. Aloneness begins to decrease, and we truly see ourselves as one. We truly experience the Greek word koinonia, that fellowship, which means more than just a potluck dinner. It means having things in common, sharing life together, sharing the love of God with one another. And so when that occurs, people's pain, when it is touched with that covenant-committed, deep kind of love of God, begins to diminish the pain in our lives. God has given us a lot of commands in Scripture, as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, as church members. I don't. You know what a yoke is? Not in an egg. Here's a picture of a yoke. A yoke is used by oxen many times, cows to to pull a plow or to pull a wagon to to do work. So that word is yoke is in the Bible and. With that image in mind, I'll ask you just to close your eyes for just a minute. I want, to, I want to talk you through something. So with that idea of the yoke, the two hoops, the harness there for the animals in mind, I want you to, to picture Jesus also. Just imagine Jesus standing there with this yoke. Let me read this passage for you. Jesus said this. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle. Now, when I first read that passage, and for years as I saw that passage, I had that same image of Jesus standing there handing this yoke to me. And that passage was a little discouraging for me because it, it starts out in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And, and I, I thought that. I thought, God, I don't need another yoke. I don't need another burden on my shoulders. I have enough to carry. How is that freeing? How is that life-giving to think about putting something else on my shoulders? And then it dawned on me one day. Jesus wasn't handing me that yoke. Jesus is in one side of that yoke. His invitation for me is to join him in my side. To do what he's already been doing. When Jesus said, I want you to love Robin as I love the church, I, I can't do that on my own. I don't know how to do that. But Jesus invites me to join him because he's already doing that. When the Bible says train up your children in the way that they should go, I don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't know which way they should go. I don't know how to do that. But when I saw that new image, Jesus is inviting me to join him because he's already loving my kids. He's already leading my children. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to invent it. I just have to follow him. I just have to join him. And suddenly, that became freeing to me. It wasn't that God was adding more burden. He was actually making my burden lighter by simply joining him and following him. But I also realized that sometimes, if I'm going to be honest, Jesus is meeting the needs of my children. Jesus is demonstrating love to my wife, but he's doing it without me. His invitation is for me to join him. His invitation for you is to join him in what he's already doing. Husbands, to see your wife as precious as Jesus sees the church, willing to lay down your life as Jesus did for us, to die, to sacrifice. Wives, to see your husband as God has created him, his need for respect, how much he depends upon your love for him, To see your children as truly gifts from the Lord. To bring honor and glory to His name. So, the challenge that I have for all of us is just to consider the relationships in your life. And maybe to ask God, God, what can I do to remove the aloneness in the lives of the people I love? How can I join you? What does it mean to join you in removing the aloneness? in the lives of the people I love. And to listen to what he says, and then to do that. That's how we take the not so good and apply the love of God, which equals very good. And I think as we consider our relationships, that's what we all desire, that they be very good. But I want to take it a step further too. It's not just our family. There are also people all around us that work with us, live in our neighborhoods, play sports with us, that feel all alone. Again, the pandemic has heightened that in so many lives. Part of our job, not only to our relationships that we have, is to our neighbors, to love them as well. So next Sunday, we're starting a new series called Who's Your One. And it's really all about relational evangelism it ties into our series a few months ago the church deployed where i challenge you to consider what it means to be the church on your block and really all i'm talking about is what does it mean to be a good neighbor what does it mean to show to demonstrate the love of god to those who live around you now don't be legalistic on saying that three houses to my left or the three houses to my right maybe they're across the street or One lady stopped by and said, I don't know how I can do that. There's an elementary school to the right of my house, and that's 700 people. I don't know that I can get to know all them. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Or maybe it's the next pastor over. Basically, just know the people that are around you and begin to demonstrate the love of God to them. And in this series, Who's Your One?, I'm going to ask you to identify one family or maybe one individual that you have identified that is far from God, that is not a believer in Christ. And maybe that's simply by asking them if they go to church anywhere. Most likely people who don't go to church or not a part of a church are not believers. That's not always the case, obviously, but in most cases I think it probably will be. And you just identify them and and I'm going to challenge you each week to begin to do some practical things that will build a relationship with them that ultimately hopefully will lead them to Christ, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were here today, you were going to get a card. We'll have them here again next week. And here are the steps that I'm going to challenge you over the next five weeks. There's a QR code that you can scan, and it takes you to a web page that gives you more detail. But to kind of help you get thinking about next Sunday and what's coming ahead in this series, I want you to watch this video about what's coming ahead.
1: Hey, First girls and family. We are so excited to be starting a new sermon series next week called Who's Your One? When you walked in this morning, you probably saw one of these cards on your chair. This is your guide for the sermon series. We wanna encourage you to do three things. Find, serve, invite. First, find your neighbors. Three houses to the right and three houses to the left of you. Know their faces and their names. Second, we want you to serve your neighbors. Do something to show them that you care for them. Bring them flowers or cookies. And finally, invite them. We want you to invite your neighbors to a neighbor night or to our Easter services on April 4th. You may be thinking to yourself, what in the world is a neighbor night? A neighbor night is where you invite your neighbors maybe to your garage or your driveway just to get to know them and spend some quality time with them. We are so excited to see what the Lord is going to do through this series.